Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're welcoming Doug Cunnington onto the show. Doug will share with us some of the cool aspects of his career path, because it is really cool how he's gotten to where he is, uh, how that career led him to financial independence, and even some of how the philosophy of stoicism has helped Doug in his life. But first, as usual, I have a little intro story today that I wanted to share with you guys. And before that, we have our review of the week. Ashman Scoops left this review on Apple Podcast. Ashman, or maybe his first name is Ashman Scoops. I'm not sure. Uh, Ashman Scoops said, Jesse is an incredibly sharp guy. The content he creates for his best interest podcast and blog is very informative and insightful. He's got stuff for everyone from the amateur investor to the seasoned financial expert. Highly recommended. Ashman, thank you for those kind words. If you're listening to this, reach out to me, jesse at bestinterest.blog and we'll get you set up with some cool best interest gear. All right, today I wanted to read to you guys something that I wrote a couple years ago, February of 2022. It's an article on the blog called Career Change, Is It a Risk? And one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk about this today is because Doug and I, in the conversation that you'll be hearing in a few minutes, we talk extensively about Doug's career and some of the career change that he went through, some of it which was planned, some of it was not planned, but it's very interesting to hear when someone goes through career change because it can be scary, it can be exciting, it can lead to good things, it can also lead to bad things. And I just want to walk you through some of my thoughts as I left engineering, this career that I had spent much of my life preparing for, and went to switch over and, and work where I'm currently working, which is a, a wealth management financial planning firm. I was speaking to a friend of the blog, Michael, back in late January of 2022, two years ago, and he said to me, just straight up, Jesse, your career change seems like a huge risk to me. Man, what a question. Kind of punched me right in the gut. And I wanted to give Michael a smart answer to his question. So I paused for a second and I, I thought to myself, what exactly is risk? I mean, I think that's the, the meat of the question. If career change is a risk, first we need to talk about what risk is. I bet you have a gut feeling for risk. You know, it's one of those things you, you know it when you see it, as the US Supreme Court would say. On its face, most big decisions, they, they must be risky, at least in, in some sense. And here we go with this career change after five and a half years of engineering school and then seven years working full-time for an aerospace engineering firm, switching careers for me must have been very risky. Now, risk is also an important investing topic too, and, and we deal with plenty of other risks in our everyday lives. But how do I define risk? How do you define risk? And how does that definition apply to Michael's question, if a career change is risky? Was my career change risky in, in hindsight? Or maybe it wasn't risky at all. So that's what I wanna talk about right now over the next few minutes. I wanna talk about risk. I wanna talk about its various definitions and, I, and what you can do to live and thrive even with risk inside of your life. So I want to start, as I start many things on the best interest, with our friend Warren Buffett. Both in 2022 and, and even today, I regularly listen to Warren Buffett, specifically Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meetings. 
It's one of the things I do when I exercise because, you know, pump up music just gets me going too fast. Dead serious. If I listen to exciting music when I'm jogging, I'm going to get tired after like 10 minutes because the exciting music just makes me want to run fast. Whereas if I'm listening to Warren and Charlie, may he rest in peace, I just jog at a pretty normal pace and I get to learn. I'm not, not even joking. That's what I do. I, I really like this question and answer that Warren gave in the 1994 shareholders meeting. It's all about risk, as you might guess, and we are going to play the question and answer for you right now. It is going to take a couple minutes, just FYI. Uh, hello, my name is Charles Pyle from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I'd like to ask you to expound on your view of risk in, in the financial world. And I ask that against the background of what appear to be a number of inconsistencies between your view of risk and the conventional view of risk. Uh, I mentioned that in a recent article you pointed out an inconsistency in the use of beta as a measure of risk, which is a common standard. And I mentioned that uh, derivatives are dangerous, and yet you feel comfortable playing a derivatives through Solomon Brothers. And uh, betting on hurricanes is dangerous, and yet you feel comfortable playing with hurricanes through insurance companies. Uh, so it appears that you have some view of risk that's inconsistent with what would appear on the face of it to be the conventional uh, view of risk. Well, we do define risk as the possibility of harm or injury. and and in that respect, we think it's, 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 it's inextricably wound up in, in, in your time horizon for, for holding an asset. I mean, if, if your risk is that you're going, if you intend to buy XYZ Corporation at 11.30 this morning and sell it out before the close today, I mean, that is, in our view, that is a, a very risky transaction because we think 50% of the time you're going to suffer some harm or injury. Uh, if you have a time horizon on a business, we think that the risk of buying something like Coca-Cola at the price we bought it at a few years ago is essentially is so close to nil uh, in terms of our prospective holding period. But if you ask me the risk of buying Coca-Cola this morning and you're going to sell it tomorrow morning, I say that is a, that's a very risky transaction. Now, as I pointed out in the annual report, it became very fashionable uh, in the academic world, and then that spilled over into the financial markets to define risk in terms of volatility, of which beta became a measure. Uh, but that measure, that, that, is, that is no measure of risk to us. The risk in terms, of our, in terms of our supercat business is not that we lose money in any given year. We know we're going to lose money in some given day, that is for certain, and, and, and we're extremely likely to lose money in a, in a given year. Our time horizon of writing that business and it would be at least a decade, and we think the probability of losing money over a, a decade is low. So we feel that in terms of our horizon of investment, that that is not a risky business, and it's a whole lot less risky than riding something that's much more predictable. Interesting thing is that using conventional measures of risk, something whose return varies from year to year between plus 20% and plus 80% is riskier as defined and something whose return is 5% a year every year. It, uh, we just think the financial world has gone haywire in terms of measures of risk. We, we look at what we do. We are perfectly willing to lose money on a given transaction, arbitrage being an example, uh, any given insurance policy being another example. We are perfectly willing to lose money on any given transaction. We are not willing to enter into transactions in which we think the probability of doing a number of mutually independent events of a, but of a similar type has an expectancy of loss. 
and, and uh, we hope that we are entering into our transactions where our calculations of those probabilities have validity. Uh, and to do so, we try to narrow it down. There are a whole bunch of things we just won't do because we don't think we can, we can write the equation on them. Uh, but we basically, Charlie and I, by nature, are, are pretty risk averse, but we are very willing to enter into transactions. We, if, if, if we knew it was an honest coin and someone wanted to uh, give us seven to five or something of the sort on one flip, how much of Berkshire's net worth would we put on that flip? Well, we, we would, it, it would sound like a big number to you. It, it, it would not be a huge percentage of the net worth, but it would, be a, it would be a significant number. We will do things when probabilities favor us. Charlie? Yeah, we, uh, I, I would say we try and think like Fermat and Pascal as if they'd never heard of modern finance theory. Uh, I really think that a lot of modern finance theory uh, can only be described as disgusting. Now, there are three important highlights from what Warren Buffett just said. The first one, risk is the probability of permanent harm or injury. The second one, risk is inextricably wound up in your time horizon. And then the third one, risk is not the same as volatility. Let's apply all three of these points to answer Michael's question about my career. And then we'll talk about risk in investing. So is my career change risky? What's the first question? Well, could I permanently harm or injure myself or harm or injure my career with this career change? I don't think so. I didn't think so in 2022, and I don't think so today. As I see it, the worst case scenario for my career change is that after a few years, I, I scurry back to engineering with my tail between my legs because the career change just didn't work out. And if I'm being really honest, I'm probably going to get a pay bump if I do go back to engineering. Or if, if you know, I don't think I am, I, I can say that now being two years into the successful change. But at the time when I wrote this article, I didn't know that. But I did know that one of the most surefire ways to get a raise in engineering right now is to leave one company and go to a different one or to leave a company and then return to that same company in a few years. That's how hot the engineering job market is. And if I went back to engineering, I'd probably get a pay bump. So that's the worst case scenario for me in my career change. And it's not that bad. And in my opinion, the probability of it occurring is low. That's how I felt in 2022. I feel even more strongly today. Whereas the best case scenario is that I love my new job, which I do, that I'm pursuing my passion, which I believe I am, and that I earn significantly more in my new career than my old one. Now, that one, I wouldn't say that I'm earning significantly more, at least not yet, but I am earning more. It's only been two years. I'm earning more now than I was in my old career. So for me, that's three for three as far as the best case scenario playing out. So could I permanently harm or injure myself with my career change? In my case, I didn't think so. And in fact, I thought the odds were in my favor. And thankfully, the way the dice have fallen, I believe that's turned out to be true. Okay, so that we're going to check off the first definition of risk right there. Let's go on to Warren's second definition of risk. The second definition is that, or the second maybe important point rather, is that risk is inextricably wound up in your time horizon. So here I was forced to ask myself, what exactly is my time horizon? While there are short-term repercussions to my career change, I give them a fairly small weighting. Instead, I, I'm thinking long-term, as I think we all should. You know, we, we do need to recognize the fact that the short-term is real. We need to give more weighting to the long-term. I think I can do many great things over a long time horizon. 
I'm hedging my short-term risk by ensuring that all my finances are in order and that my new career can more than sustain me in the short run. That's something I did. And I knew that I was safe in the short run because my, my financial house was in order. Whereas on the flip side, was there a risk to me staying at my old job for the next 20 years? Absolutely, there was. The, the risk is that I would permanently impair my quality of life by not fully enjoying 50 plus percent of my waking hours, right? I'm spending all this time at a job that it was fine. It was mediocre. I've said it time and again that engineering to me was okay. It's not like I hated it. I was comfortable there, maybe a little bit numb. No, no pun intended, Pink Floyd fans. And, and that to me was a risk. There was a risk of staying at my old career. For me, changing careers and my time horizon. Yes, the longer I thought about my career change or the longer that I would be living the career change, I actually think the less risky it would become. We're only two years in, but so far that one's looking good too. And now the third important point from what Warren Buffett was saying, risk is not volatility. Did my career change cause a, a short-term shakeup in my life? Absolutely it did. Absolutely, it caused volatility. One right away would just be the, the number of conversations of people like asking me like, hey, Jesse, just double checking. You're gonna quit engineering to pursue this thing that, why, why again? Because you've been blogging and podcasting about it and now you're gonna change your career over it? Yeah, totally. Uh, I get it. Great question. Fair question. But to me, that's volatility. That's a volatile question. That's not a risky question, at least not in the long run. Some other things that shook up my life. I had to buy a new wardrobe. My day-to-day -day skill sets and tasks were completely different. My commute, at least at that time, I was living on the west side of Rochester, not that anyone out there cares, but my old commute was five minutes. My new commute was 20 minutes. And there are plenty more tiny things. But again, it was all short-term volatility. And engineers work life is fairly stable and flat and predictable. My new career has more successes. It also has more failures and has a bit more randomness. My new career is more volatile, but again, that's not risk to me. That's just, it's just a trait of the new job and it's actually one that I like. So to kind of wrap it all up and think about Michael's original question, my career change had downsides, both real and potential, no doubt about it. Some of those were risks, but I thought that at the time, and I still think today, they were relatively small risks. But more importantly, I thought that the magnitude of the upside and the probability of the upside far outweighed the downside risks. The scales, the probabilities, they tipped in my favor, just like Warren Buffett's coin flip from that audio we played before, where he says he has seven to five odds in his favor. If, if Warren Buffett has seven to five odds on a coin flip, he's going to take that wager every single time. And similarly, I had good odds for my career change, and it's something I wanted to take. Now, we can apply those same definitions of risk to your investing. In fact, I think it's extremely helpful to do so. So the first one, risk is the probability of permanent harm or injury. Now, each asset class, stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera, it has its own probability of permanent harm or injury. If you're buying a single stock, that's pretty risky. Now, here's some stats for you. 40% of individual stocks over the history of the stock market, 40% have seen a decline of 70% or more from which they've never recovered. In other words, 40% of stocks have seen a scenario such as they were purchased for $100, or at one point they were $100 per stock, they dropped down to $30, and then they never recovered from that. That is permanent harm. That's a permanent impairment of the investor's capital. 
Now, let's compare that to an index fund of stocks, the S&P 500 index fund, which has 500 stocks, 500 companies inside of it. Now, for that, there's near zero risk. Yes, we know that index funds will rise and fall with the market because the market suffers corrections and crashes, but the market also tends to recover, at least it always has in the past. The harm that we feel is unlikely to be permanent in the case of an index fund of stocks. So much less risk, in my opinion, and in Warren Buffett's opinion, when it comes to an index fund. When we talk about something like Bitcoin, risky. There's a non-zero chance that cryptocurrency is an incredible Ponzi scheme that permanently goes to zero. I'm not saying that's guaranteed. I'm also just saying that's a non-zero chance. Parts of cryptocurrency do appear to be real, while many other parts are obviously fraudulent, obviously murky or manipulated. For that reason, I think someone should be very, very careful when investing in cryptocurrency. They should avoid exposing any sort of large part of their portfolio to that kind of risk. Okay. Now, Warren's second statement about risk. Let's think about it when it comes to typical investments. Warren said, risk is inextricably wound up in your time horizon. What time horizon do you have for your investments? That is one of the fundamental questions of financial planning and goals-based investing. In general, but not always, long-termism trumps short-termism. If you maintain a long time horizon, your investments, your assets, they become less risky over time. Warren Buffett's favorite holding period, he says, is forever. As long as he identifies a strong company at a fair price, he sees little risk over that kind of time horizon. Another example, you might have seen a figure before when it comes to how long you need to hold an S&P 500 index fund in order to guarantee that you have a positive return. If we look back on historical returns and we compare all one-month periods in history, one month, that's the period we're looking at we'd see there's roughly a 60% chance that you have a positive return, roughly a 40% chance that you have a negative return. That's for one month periods. But if we go to 20 or 30 year periods, there's a 100% chance that you would have made money in the S&P 500 over that kind of time. If we go down to say like a, a 10 year period, there's like a 97% chance you would have made money, a 3% chance you would have lost money. So at one month, 60% chance of success, at 10 or 20 or 30 years, basically a 100% chance of success. So when Buffett says that risk is inextricably wound up in your time horizon, that's what he's talking about. If you only have one month to invest, stocks aren't the right asset class for you. If you have 10 or 20 or 30 years, all of a sudden stocks make a lot more sense. And then finally, risk is not volatility. Now let's compare two stocks and I'm going to use some numbers here. So I'll try to go slow. Stock A has grown between 10 and 20% per year for the last 10 years. Stock B has shrunk by 2 to 3% per year for the past 10 years. Which stock is riskier? Now, if we used volatility as a measure of risk, the answer would be that stock A is riskier. It's more volatile. Its range of outcomes has been significantly wider than stock B. But which stock would you rather own? Which stock is better? Which is worse? Stock A is obviously better. It's grown 10 to 20% per year for the past 10 years, and stock B is riskier. It's just constantly and consistently shrinking. So that's the difference between volatility and true risk. While volatility can signal the probability of permanent loss, which is a risk, volatility cannot be called the equivalent of risk. The opposite statement is true too. Consistency, as opposed to volatility, is not the same as lack of risk. A consistently shrinking company 
is going to go to zero eventually. That's permanent loss. And as Buffett would say, that's a real risk. But I do think there's one exception, and it's a very important exception, which is why I want to highlight it. Volatility, although it's not risk, it can influence us to do dumb things, such as the thought process of, well, my tech stocks are all down 20% this year, and I'm going to sell them all before they go any lower. That's a short-sighted response that will lock in permanent losses. So volatility in that scenario, it's not the risk, but it influences risky behavior. So it's important that investors out there realize that. Your investments most likely will be volatile at, during some part of the period in which you hold them. That's almost a guarantee. So that's why you want to make sure that, as I talk about on the blog, you want to run a, a fire drill for your investments. A fire drill. When the alarm goes off, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? How are you going to act? Too many investors out there, when that fire alarm goes off in their portfolio and some things start dropping and things look a little bit worrying, they panic. They, they do the worst thing possible. They panic and they sell. The reason why I call it a fire drill is let's think about real fire safety. Why do four-year-old and six-year-old and eight-year-old children do all these fire drills in elementary school? You probably remember them. Why? Why did we do them all? It's pretty simple, actually. The reason why is because during a real fire, it's a pretty stressful situation. It's a little bit scary. It's loud. It's panicky. And we don't want small children. We don't want anybody, but especially small children. We don't want them to panic in that scenario. We want them to react instinctively and know exactly what they should be doing. They should do a single file line and they should walk to the nearest exit and they should congregate outside. And I can remember from my elementary school, that's exactly what we did. Every single fire drill. It was driven into us to the point where it became instinct. And similarly, in your investment portfolio, when the markets drop, you don't want to panic. You want to know exactly what you should be doing. And quite often, the answer is you do nothing. Maybe you rebalance, but more or less, you just wait it out. So that's what I talk about when I say running a fire drill for your investments. Your investments will be volatile. That's almost a guarantee. Make sure you run a fire drill for your investments. Okay. As we know, risk is more than asking what's the downside. Risk is about timing. It's about opportunity costs, and it's about the probability of something going to zero. It made me feel great about my career change, which two years on, I can say has been a fantastic success for me. And it makes me feel good about the way I invest, and I hope it helps you guys too. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. Let's get to today's guest, Doug Cunnington. Doug was at one time a typical nine to five worker, although as he would say it, perhaps it was more like an eight to eight career, but Doug broke that mold and we'll discuss the details today. Doug is now financially independent, FI, but he's not yet retired early. He still puts in some time and energy into the various projects that enabled him to leave that eight to eight corporate career. And we're going to talk about many of those details today. It's pretty interesting, actually, what Doug is doing to support himself financially. And among Doug's many interesting projects, he hosts a very popular financial independence podcast called Mile High FI alongside Carl Jensen. Carl appeared here on episode 63 of the Best Interest Podcast. 
So without any further ado, here's Doug Cunnington. Doug, let's start with a bit of your career story, your career timeline. I know career is always an important thing to talk about when it comes to FI. I know at one point you worked a pretty grueling corporate career, so that's fact one, and eventually you left it and became a successful entrepreneur, and then that enabled you to reach FI, financial independence, but not quite retire early. I'm missing all of the fun, cool, colorful details, so I'm hoping that's where you might be able to come in and fill in all that blank space for us. I'm going to jump in in the middle, and then I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I didn't leave the corporate job on my own. I got laid off in 2015. And the cool part was, it was the greatest thing ever, right? I didn't have to actually make the decision to quit my job because it was a pretty good job, pretty good pay. I was working remotely at the time. I had a ton of autonomy and I probably wouldn't have left on my own. So I was able to grow some side hustles up, which I'll now weave into the story and go back in time a little bit. So I went to school for engineering, computer engineering, because someone told me, hey, you're good at math, maybe do engineering. This looks like a good degree. I really didn't have a reason to do it. And I ended up doing fine. And I got a job as a management consultant at Accenture. So pretty good company. Funny thing, I, I was referred in there, didn't make it in for sort of the GPA cutoff. So I wouldn't have been able to make it in on my own just to like lay the foundation of I'm a mediocre performer overall. School, in the career, in the job, maybe that's why I got laid off, but extremely realistic about it, right? So I was referred in and it seemed exciting. You know, you're in your early 20s, you're traveling around, you are presented like a lot of stuff and you're an expert, but really we didn't, we didn't know anything because it was our first job and we were put on these different projects. So eventually the sexiness of travel and staying in hotels and being a consultant, it kind of wore off pretty quick for me. So I didn't enjoy the travel lifestyle day in and day out. And you fly out on Monday or maybe Sunday evening, and then you fly back on Thursday night. Just It's pretty tough and there's always delays at the airport. So eventually... I left that company and started working at a competitor where there was more opportunity for some local projects. So that kind of worked out better, but you still ended up commuting and just long days and projects that I, I wasn't really interested in. So I kept trying to go up the corporate ladder. So I tried to figure out how to make that work for me. And, and slowly over time, I actually like made that work and got promoted a couple of times. But Overall, I was, like I said, kind of mediocre at best. And in 2013, I found a podcast called Smart Passive Income, and that's with Pat Flynn. And it opened my eyes to this whole world of side hustles, which I had no interest in entrepreneurship or starting my own business or anything related to online work. And I had no experience in that area either. And it changed everything. I, I got obsessed and I started listening to all the episodes and I thought, oh, this guy actually seems like he's trustworthy. And eventually I thought it doesn't sound like a scam because the first couple of times you hear about making money online, it sounds really 
like weird. You didn't realize that people were making a lot of money online. That kind of changed everything for me. And that was in 2013. So I'll pause here because that was about 10 years of career in there. Well, just speaking of timing and years, for frame of reference for the listeners, this is not a personal question. How old are you today, Doug, as you speak to us? 44. 44. Okay. So in 2015, when you got laid off, or in 2013, when you heard the podcast, you were 34 in 2013, roughly 36 when the layoff happened. I'm just curious, when you got laid off, you mentioned some almost some relief that they made the decision for you, so to speak. I mean, was that was it instantaneous relief? Was there an hour or a day or a week of fear or of like, what do I do next? Or were you pretty much immediately like, I've got these side hustles, which we will dive into. And now all of a sudden I have this opportunity to pursue them more. By that time, I was listening to Tim Ferriss a lot on his podcast and several other entrepreneurship minded shows. So my mindset over those two years, 2013 to 2015, It changed. And I thought, I want to control my own destiny. I don't want to work for someone else, work so hard to get a pretty small bonus or maybe a raise. And it really just, the math didn't work out from my personal time capital and what I could do for myself versus like working really hard for a company. Because I I had tried it and tried to get promoted and it really, it didn't pay off very much. And I didn't see a future where... I worked at a corporation for another 10 or 15 years to have essentially the same job that I was already doing and get paid a little bit more and still be just as miserable like 10 or 15 years later. So I was probably excited more than anything else. And and one of the main reasons why is when I first got started and I found Smart Passive Income, I started taking action immediately, like failing pretty often, always on a small scale, but I started my first website after maybe four or six weeks and again, made every mistake in the book. I had no clue what I was doing, but I was learning with each iteration. So by the time I got laid off, I had already proven little glimpses of success. I saw that I could make essentially replacement income for a few months at a time before some roller coaster ride situation happened, but I was earning several thousand dollars per month. And I think just the highlight, I I remember this because I was like setting a goal. So I set a goal to start a website to earn like $350 per month. And I hit that goal within like two or three months. And then within six months total, it made 6,000, over $6,000 in that one month. And again, there was a roller coaster ride. Not everything was perfect, but by doing it one time, I saw that it was possible to make this like a long-term thing. When I got laid off, I was pretty happy because I knew that I could do it because I did it before. It wasn't just seeing someone else do it. I literally had little uh, windows where I executed exactly what I needed to do. I'm probably not the only one curious listening right now what's a typical business model for one of these websites? I mean, we'll come back. I, I want to hear more about kind of the entrepreneurial journey from that 2013, 2014 to today, which I assume involves maybe some of these websites maturing and growing and, and supporting your lifestyle. But this $6,000 over six months, is it ad revenue? Are you selling a, a product? What, what's going on? At that time, things shift all the time and we're kind of in a, an influx in the market. So things could change, but the general idea is you have a content website where you are 
providing reviews on specific products. So it's an affiliate relationship, in this case with Amazon. So maybe I have reviews for camera gear for YouTube specifically. So it's like DSLR cameras and lenses and reviews and how-tos. So you can recommend a specific lens that works really well for certain things. And someone is searching for that exactly on Google. And then they find your website, they land on your website, they click the link in the review, they land at Amazon or B&H Photo or somewhere else. And if they make a purchase, then you get a commission. The other side, right, if it's how-to, maybe there's not a product that you're recommending, it could be ad revenue, it could be a direct relationship with a specific company, maybe it's some sort of a, a lens that you could add onto your phone to have a, a better camera, and maybe you have a direct relationship to do ads there. So pretty straightforward, it's the same kind of revenue that you would see across the board as a simple business model. If you have attention, if you have traffic on your website, then someone wants to get in front of it. Very interesting. So between 2015 and today, have you just been building more and more and more of these niche websites and, and that's kind of become your business, your, your entrepreneurial business, or, or are there other facets to Doug Cunnington, Inc.? I built several websites in that time frame, probably 20, say 14 to 2018 or so, and spent a lot of time on that. I sold several of them, a few in the six figures range. Mm -hmm. And you know that really moves the needle to do that. I mean, you created something from scratch. It's not buying a property and fixing it up. It's literally, you know, you put in a pretty small amount of capital. I put in a lot of time, of course, with writing and publishing content, other activities. But overall, it's like you're creating value out of scratch. And the other thing that I, I haven't mentioned, it made everything a lot more complicated and slowed the business growth. But now sitting here 10 years later, it was a really great move. So I learned from podcasts and blogs. So immediately I thought, I also want to teach people with podcasts and, and blogs and other things just to, to share my journey, right? And, you know, it's narcissistic probably, but it's also a way to keep you accountable if you're like publishing content. And there, there's a lot of benefits that come with it. The biggest thing that I did was I started an email list and I immediately started creating online courses or digital products in 2013. So I barely knew what I was doing, but it turns out you could teach people that are just a little bit behind you. And sometimes you're the best person to teach them if you're just a little bit ahead because you remember what it was like to be a couple steps behind where if you learn from an expert, like if I got a basketball lesson from Michael Jordan, it wouldn't land right. I'm not at the right level. Yeah, never was, never yeah. will be. So like sometimes it's perfect to learn from someone just ahead of you. All that to say, I created really a personal brand in a set of courses that I've iterated and rebooted and kept up to date over the last few years. And really, the whole time I was earning about half the revenue from digital online courses that I created myself. Margins are super high. At the time that I started the first course, the platforms weren't as great. But now, we could go sign up for Teachable or Kajabi or whatever and have an online course running in like one hour. Like we don't even have to have a website set up yet. Like we could do it all there. 
so I earned about half of my income and revenue from online courses, things that I created, and then the other half from affiliate marketing, selling the sites and that sort of thing. Like I said, it slowed my progress down in both areas by splitting the time, but it really made it a much more kind of defensible company because if something went wrong in one area, I still had half the revenue, which was completely independent. And that really, it helps a lot because there's a lot of things that are outside of your control with some of the details of the business model. I feel like you know my understanding, and here I am, I, I write and I podcast, but I'm also just kind of aware of the, the online marketing business model from a, a bit of an outsider's point of view, but also a little bit of an insider's. I kind of have a foot in each side of things. It seems a little bit like the wild, wild west in terms of things are always changing and Google changes an algorithm and Amazon changes a commission rate. It does seem like a challenging place to to run a business. So I could understand that desire of yours to basically diversify your revenue streams as, as a safety measure. Maybe we can talk, Doug, a little bit about how this career change and how your many side hustles or your business kind of has segued into financial independence for you. When I first found some of the side hustles, I immediately realized, and, and people talk about it, it's scalable in a way that you can't really scale at your job. So even if I did everything I was supposed to and did a really good job, which I already mentioned before, I was kind of a middle performer. So I wasn't knocking it out of the park. I wasn't getting those you know 95th percentile performance reviews. Basically, you're only going to get a limited fixed raise or a fixed promotion. And Again, I wasn't the kind of person that could like jump from company to company and keep getting raises through my really good interviewing skills or something like that. So I basically had a rough year when I first was out on my own. So the first year was a little rougher, still profitable, but I was trying to find my footing. So I wasn't scared. Like I mentioned before, I was excited, but I did need to test a few different business models to see what I liked. I found a couple things that I didn't like, like I didn't want to run an agency and have clients. I didn't like to have to answer to people. I wanted to have a huge amount of autonomy. Because of that, the online courses and creating sites were perfect for me. And now you have this autonomy to potentially not retire early, but take more time off than maybe you did before. When I did realize that I, I could earn a lot more money, it happened pretty quick. So the first year was a little rougher. And then I was able to really grow quite a bit. And I was earning far more than I was or that I could earn at my old job, even if I worked there for like another 10 or 15 years. Again, the scale is unbelievable once you get into it. And it happens very fast. It can happen really fast, especially when there's very low overhead. And again, you're selling your own digital products, which are very high margin anyway. So all that really changed things. The thing is, my wife and I, we really didn't discover the FI movement and pay much attention to it until we moved to Longmont, which is somewhat an epicenter of the FI community. There's a lot of people that are uh, popular bloggers or podcasters that live in the vicinity here. We did start saving a little bit more around 2013, 2014, so still right around the same time, when we realized that 
my wife and I were individually outperforming our advisors that were supposed to be professionals and doing a better job. And we were just doing it through some index funds or S&P 500, like pretty simple stuff, but we really didn't know what we were doing. So at that time, we fired our advisors and then my wife found Mr. Money Mustache just from an investing standpoint. So we took a look, we started investing in index funds, and then we didn't pay attention. A lot of our friends, they find Mr. Money Mustache and they read the whole blog and then they get obsessed and they go down the rabbit hole. We didn't do that. We just started investing and then went on with our life. I got laid off, started earning more. It was some good years in the market. So fast forward like eight years, like that's a huge amount of money. Like both my wife and I are middle aged going through our careers. We're earning more money. We're not spending that much more. Sometimes we're cutting costs. And like a lot of the stories, we just ended up saving more. Now, that said, I had you know, some idea like, oh, we could stop working, but I am self-employed. I've been self-employed since 2015. And it was very apparent to me that I could create a job that I liked or that I didn't like. So all along the way, like that's the filter, like, is this a job that I want to do? At the point where I was earning a lot and had a lot of flexibility, I started just cutting off pieces of the business or activities that I didn't want to do that weren't fun and move forward. So I ended up with like a distilled version of a fun job. And I continue to do that day in and day out. Of course, you can't get away from all the stuff. Like everyone probably has to answer emails, but I could do it on my own terms instead of, you know, what my boss wants to do. So you've got the fun distilled job and you've got the fun distilled hobbies or passions on the side. And I know one of those very cool side projects is hosting the Mile High FI podcast with Carl Jensen. And, and on the podcast, you talk with tons of different people inside the FI FIRE community. And I, I'm sure many of your listeners, and I, I know this for a fact, many of your listeners send you their interesting questions or things they've seen or things they've read about the FIRE community. And we're exposed, meaning you, know, you and I are, are people who kind of work in this FIRE or FI investing space. We're exposed to the outside opinions of FIRE from kind of mainstream society some of which are positive, some of which are negative. So as a, an FI fire expert, or at very least a podcast host who's always exposed to this stuff, what do you think average Joe and Jane get right or get wrong when it comes to financial independence and fire? One of the big things I see really is a, I think it's a controversial topic that people put out there just to get attention is that you have to retire and stop working. I don't think the people that create this content and then tell the average Joe and Jane out there, I don't think they really think this, but of course, people are probably going to do something because they want to be productive, especially if you've managed to accumulate enough money where you can retire, you're probably kind of driven or you're interested and you will have some side project that may or may not earn money. Like you could do a sort of a charity type situation or volunteer at a nonprofit where you're not going to create money specifically. You'll create value elsewhere in your community, perhaps. But anyway, the point is a lot of people are like, oh, you retired and then you don't do anything. And perhaps I'm a good example. Like I don't say that I'm retired because I slowly morphed 
into self-employment through being laid off. And then I like what I'm doing because I've created a fun job. I don't work that many hours. The work that I'm doing is podcasting, which I love. Mile High Fi, I chat with my friend and we have a fun time recording and it's pretty low overhead. It's not a lot of work and it's fun 90% of the time. That's one thing people get wrong. The other side of the coin is they just don't believe that they can retire early because they haven't been exposed to the ideas or compound interest. And like, it's not intuitive, right? So if they see a compound interest table for the first time, that could really change things. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with like who they hang around and what they're exposed to. If they never see it, then it seems really crazy. But here in Longmont, I know a lot of people that are retired or on the path. So it's just totally normal for someone to have free time on a random Tuesday afternoon. And you just call them and say, hey, you want to go for a hike? I, I think that's one of the biggest things that I see as well is reiterating what you just said, Doug, is I'll hear someone say, okay, so Doug's 44. You are still working, but you probably could pull the trigger and retire today if you wanted to, Doug. I'm, I'm making a bit of an assumption there, but I see you nodding your head. Yeah. And But the question they ask themselves is, how is that possible? Doug could live to 84 or 94. And how is it possible that he has 50 years worth of expenses saved up right now? And the short answer is, you might not have all 50 years saved up right now. If you just look at the way that investments tend to perform over long periods of time, your rate of growth is probably going to outpace your rate of spending, which means you're in a terrific position. Yeah. And we're, we're very flexible too, as far as the expenses for optional stuff. I think an easy one for us to trim back on or trim up in the case of some good years, good returns, travel, right? So your trips can change scope. Like we're still going to go on vacations, but maybe it's at a state park that's close by versus a European vacation, something like that. So pretty easy to trim. And the difference in that could be like tens of thousands of dollars. So I think that's something just having flexibility, but that pays off in almost all areas of your life to just be flexible and, you know, deal with what you can deal with. Yeah. I think another flexibility or, or just something that stands out to me about kind of the conventional way that people think about retirement. This is a really interesting stat that comes out of the Trinity study, which is kind of where the 4% rule comes from. And if listeners aren't familiar, you know, the 4% rule is based on a 30 year retirement and says that you can withdraw 4% of your portfolio per year, inflation adjusted, and there's a few other nuances in there. But in the back testing of the 4% rule, a retiree is just as likely to 4X their retirement nest egg as they are to retire with one less dollar than they started with. So it, it just kind of shows you that look, there's so much margin built into the 4% rule and there's so much margin built into the way that the typical American thinks about retirement that if you're willing to expose yourself to not even that much more risk or if you're willing to be flexible, like you just said, Doug, which the Trinity study isn't flexible, but if you're willing to be flexible, all of a sudden you can open this door to an earlier retirement and, and kind of reclaim a lot more of your time that at least up till now, you thought you had to be working for decades. And then one other thing I'll throw in is, you know, I wasn't a super high paid tech employee. I had, a, I had a good job, but it was it was roughly average for where I was working at the time. 
had bad investments as far as real estate. Our age dictated that when we bought our first house, it was like the end of 2005. So kind of the worst time that you can yeah, buy a height okay. of the market. I have a foreclosure from 2013. Is that right? So I have a foreclosure, which was strategic in nature, a whole other discussion. But that was like a lesson of like risk management. The, the point being, you could have a mess behind you. I got a handful of things right, a lot of other things wrong, but nothing catastrophic. It maybe seemed catastrophic. Letting a house go into foreclosure seems really bad. And I would recommend people like do plenty of research and all that. But literally no one told me, hey, do a strategic foreclosure. Like no one said that's a good idea. And it turned out it was awesome. It was like one of the best financial decisions that I could make. But you can have a financial mess behind you and still come out pretty good, especially if you have a long-term view with compound interest. Totally. And the other big idea there is we've got listeners who are all over the age spectrum. No matter when you're listening, you can still get your financial stuff in order right now. I, I had a phone call earlier this week with a 34-year-old listener of the podcast who was telling me that for the first time in his adult life, he's really getting into the nitty gritty and, and pulling his financial house in order. And he kind of expressed some regret to me that he hadn't done it before. But 34, I mean, still very young. He's still got a lot of time and, and a lot of earning years ahead of him if he needs them. And some people are sitting there at 44 or 54 or 64 and having the same thoughts. The, the moral of the story there is it's never too late to kind of forget about some of the mistakes you've made before and look ahead. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews, but... I have something more important, at least more important to me. I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah, I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. you. You mentioned side hustles earlier. I kind of want to come back into the side hustle topic because it plays a prominent role in your career path, some side hustles. It's a prominent topic on Mile High Fi, where people will call in with some questions about their side hustles. How does one determine if a side hustle in their life is worthwhile? Or, or put another way, when does a side hustle become stupid, for lack of a better term, versus when is it something that you should potentially burn the ships for and start pursuing full time? That's such a tough one. It's a great question. I think one of the main things to look at is what your goal is with the side hustle. And I think the key little distinction here is if you're working on it and you're losing money or you're not earning anything, it's kind of a hobby. Like you could form an LLC, you can have some tax advantages around that, consult with your accountant and your professional and all that stuff. But if you're not earning anything, then it's probably more of a hobby versus a side hustle. That said, hobbies are fantastic. One of the things we haven't talked about here, which is a key thing with Mile High Fi is happiness. So Mile High Fi often talks about 
more advanced phi topics and post phi. When you hit your phi number or some milestone, everything is not magically going to get better. Like you still have all the same things in your life. Now, maybe you just don't have to work. Of course, there's a case where, you know, if you totally hate your job, then not working there is going to make you happier, but you still may have some things to conquer, some demons to deal with. And you could start working on that before you hit your fine number. For that reason, having a hobby is great. Hobbies are awesome. And that is probably what you should be spending more of your time on when you don't have to work. When you are looking at it through that lens, a hobby can be okay. So that, that doesn't mean it's terrible and quit doing it. So if you don't like the side hustle and you're not earning money, it's probably time to move on. This should be like an obvious thing, but like sometimes we get the sunk cost really weighing us down and it's like we put in so much time, we invested money and you don't want to move forward with it. And people should go read a little bit more about sunk costs. But if it just showed up, this project that you're working on, if it showed up today, would you keep working on it if you could just ignore the past, all the investment of time and money and other resources? Would you move forward with it? And if the answer is no, then you should probably stop doing it. As far as burning the ships, I mean, there's a rare combination where you're passionate and excited about the work and it's starting to earn more money or at least show some success. And that's a time where you should maybe really seriously look at putting more time into it. That said, like many five folks, I am more conservative. So I, I wouldn't recommend folks burn their uh, boats for anything. Just have a conservative plan that you could move forward with and slowly make progress. I can't remember the exact quote, but I've been reading a lot of Morgan Housel here recently. Mm-hmm. And I think he's quoting someone else. But the point is, he, you want to have a plan that makes a forecast irrelevant. You didn't even need the forecast because the plan was conservative enough to work. And by definition, it's just really conservative. And the point is, it's going to work out. You don't have to rely on a lot of things happening where they're out of your control. And I think that's what I I would recommend. So I wouldn't burn the ships. I would make sure you still have a backup plan. Well, that reminds me of one of my all-time favorites is Warren Buffett. And one of Warren Buffett's foundational investing principles is margin for error. And it doesn't have to be just an investing principle. It can be a career planning principle. It can be something you just apply to your everyday life. I mean, personally, I'm one of these people who I really like to show up to meetings five minutes or 10 minutes early, even if I'm just sitting in the parking lot because I arrive too early, essentially. But one of the reasons why is, you know, I I build margin for error into my day just in case I hit traffic. And anyway, I think that conservatism is a good way to go about the side hustle question as well. I I only asked, Doug, because I have had some interactions before with people who are, say, Uber drivers on the side. Day job, they do whatever, nine to five. They drive Uber at night and they say, this is my side hustle. I'm making a ton of money off of it. Personally, I see Uber driving or that that kind of side hustle as a bit of a dead end. But then again, I have a friend, and he's actually a friend of the podcast and the blog, who he started a side hustle around the same time as you, actually. I think it was right in that 2013-14. And then within the last couple of years, he sold that business for many millions of dollars. And it started as just this casual, on the weekends in the garage side hustle. 
So it's very interesting to see this wide spectrum and, and sometimes they're a waste of time. Sometimes they turn out to be amazing. I'm just not sure I have the, the skills right now to, to discern the difference, whereas I think maybe you do. That's generous of you to think I have those skills, but <laughs> I think your friend's example is really good because, you know, I mentioned before me starting essentially two business, two businesses alongside each other, like slowed things down. And I have a friend who started a site, you know, years ago and essentially like he's only worked on that. And I think there is something to be said where if you just focus on like one project, there's a lot of books about this, but if you just focus on one project, keep iterating, keep improving, you will end up with some big exit like that. And I have a couple of friends who actually have sold, others that have held on to their websites or projects or whatever it might be. But yeah, you end up with a pretty big asset. And it's, it's amazing, especially when you start it from nothing and you're creating all this value for the world and someone else could actually like take it farther or build their business, or maybe it's time for you to move on. Like I slowly got bored building new websites and dealing with some of the ups and downs and shifted more into content creation, podcast, YouTube, and move more in that direction versus like doing the same thing over and over again. And I think people have different approaches to their careers. I think for me, it's very interesting to learn new things. So as I'm winding down one thing, I'm doing more in another. And it's kept it you know, very interesting. And I'm also putting it through the filter of, do I like doing this kind of work? So I, you know, I'm self-employed. So it'd be really silly for me to create a job that I don't like. Well, speaking of liking things or not liking things, or we've covered some interesting territory along that line today of maybe finding boredom in a career versus excitement or dealing with hardship and fire versus dealing with a fun path in financial independence. So I want to end on a bit of a non-finance question along those lines. I know you've helped Carl, your co-host, understanding and, and practicing stoicism in his life because you are a bit of a stoic in your life. So can you give us some of your maybe 80, 20 lessons when it comes to stoicism? And then I, I think in some ways, or at least with my understanding of stoicism, there are some stoic things we can do in our financial lives. And I'm wondering if you see stoicism applying to your finances. Carl and I recorded a show about you know my stoic sort of principles and ideas and stuff. And I, I didn't even realize that I was displaying that. I have a couple stoic books, but I don't, I haven't paid attention in a while, so it was kind of surprising. That said, a couple things you know jump out. There's some things that we can control, and then most things we can't control. And really, for me, just dealing with that helps a lot. And I'm not—I mean, no one's perfect, right? But I, I hate sitting in traffic or having uh, a traffic situation. So me not commuting is a really good thing. Obviously, very far outside your control. It's a perfect example of like maybe leaving a few minutes early because you don't know what traffic is going to show up. And there's always someone going slower than you want whenever you're in a hurry. So controlling the things that you can control and just accepting what you can't. One of the others is viewing obstacles as an opportunity for either growth or just finding sort of like the silver lining in that cloud. Ryan Holiday wrote a whole book on, on this, right? So pretty straightforward. I think the the final one, which we're all getting older second by second, the final one here, 
really came to light in maybe a little more serious way reading Die With Zero and 4,000 Weeks in the last year. Highly recommend both of those books, but they make you think about dying and what's that going to be like in really appreciating each day. And I think when you put all those things together, if you can get most of that right most of the time, you'll probably be pretty content and satisfied, hopefully. And I think those are the three main things that I look at. What about you, Jesse? Do you have any stoic or do you consider yourself a stoic? Similar to you, I'm looking over at my bookshelf. I don't think I own any stoic books, but I've definitely listened to my fair share of Ryan Holiday. And some of stoicism, I think, just falls out of if we all just kind of take a pause and, and take a step back and examine life, I think naturally we might come up with some stoic philosophies of our own. And one of the simplest being exactly what you said before is there are a lot of things in life that you cannot control. And no matter how much you're bothered by those things, it still doesn't change the fact that you can't control them. So why allow yourself to get terribly bothered by them in the first place? That's kind of a, a stoicism 101. I, and just thinking about a little thing being when markets are down in 2022, when the stock market was down, whatever, 18% and the bond market was down 14%, I almost felt like an alien in that some people around me or people I was talking to or readers writing into the blog with with tons of concern, which I do understand because it's nerve wracking when you see that your account is down big, but I can't control the stock market or the bond market and, and neither can anyone listening. What we can control is our stock allocation, say, or our, our investment allocation. And there are logical reasons why we made the decisions we made before the year started or in some previous time. And then the rest is out of your control. How the markets actually perform is out of your control. Having that bit of a stoic mindset simply from to, to apply to my investment portfolio has been helpful. I, I tend to not stress about it that much. And a lot of times when I look back on days or conversations or whatever it might be that brought a lot of stress, I realize that I had some stoic shortcomings in those particular periods where I allowed myself to be bothered by something that at the end of the day, there's nothing I could have done about it. It's a constant practice as you probably think too. Yeah. Great example. Doug, we've talked about Mile High FI a lot. We've also talked about some of your side projects. How can people listen to the podcast? How can people reach out to you and check out some of the things that you're doing? Yeah, so Mile High Fi, we're on YouTube and any of the big podcast players. The topics, like I said, are a lot of more advanced topics or lifestyle topics. So when a person has, in quotes, graduated from some of the basic ideas, our show seems to sort of pick up from there. Because once you hear enough conversations about the 4% rule, you have that lesson learned and you can move <laughs> on to some of the other ideas. The other thing to mention is I have my own show. It's on affiliate marketing and side hustles called The Doug Show. If you're in, interested in like side hustles or affiliate marketing, you could check out that stuff. I have a YouTube channel just under Doug Cunnington where there's a lot of, I think I have 2,000 videos at this point. So I put in the reps over there. And if you want to learn about some of that website stuff, you could check it out. And I do live streams uh, usually once a week over there too. Those are pretty fun. Pretty small community. Really enjoy doing uh, YouTube as well. Now that you mentioned it, Doug, your YouTube channel, I think I saw it earlier, is pretty pretty big. You've got a lot of subscribers there. So you, you, so you said 2,000 videos there? Yes. Yeah, 2,000 videos. I think I just crossed like 70,000 subscribers. It's just a vanity metric. And it's just been fun working on, in different mediums. Like I, I said, 
I think once I start getting a little bored with one area, I'll add on another layer. So the the growth has just been really slow as I add different mediums to what I'm producing. Very cool, Doug. We will make sure to throw all those links into the show notes for anybody wanting to check you out. Doug Connington, thank you for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.